Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where our community is like finding a hidden level in a video game. Bonus points, extra lives, and endless fun. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft the business you're proud of, and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Well, you got your coffee yet today? Well, how is it? Is it good? You know, I would guess that you're probably satisfied with your morning coffee, but are you excited about it? Like delighted? How about loyal? Be loyal to your coffee? Would you say you'd get a tattoo of your favorite coffee brand? I've actually seen some of those. But uh, for most people, the answer would be no, and that would be wise. Because satisfaction and loyalty are kind of like dating and marriage. I mean, one is great for the short term and the other is real commitment. Now, I'm kind of a coffee nerd myself. If you've been listening for a while, you know that. Coffee origin, flavors, roast date, and the, the method of making it because they're all different, right? I just nerd out on that stuff and really enjoy great coffee, which is a little strange because it wasn't that long ago that I didn't like coffee, like at all. I know it's like shocking. Yeah, I wouldn't touch the stuff. I mean, it's like, no way. I, I don't like that. And so what shifted? You know, it's the magnetic pull of community. I wasn't a coffee guy. I wasn't a fan. Didn't like it. And part of the reason was that I only had bad coffee. And bad coffee is, is plentiful. <laughs> you don't have to look too far to find bad coffee. And it's actually, it's much better today than it has been historically. And you know, for me, it was a group of friends who like coffee. And so, you know, we're hanging out and they said, well, try it this way. Try it that way. Maybe you'll like this. And so, you know, I did. And, you know, over time, and I don't know if it was an acquired thing or I remember, you know, one particular time we we're in Las Vegas of all places and it was cold, like freezing cold and, uh, you know, coffee. And it was kind of a turning point. It's like, this is really good. I, I like this. And I kind of did it because it was a social thing. It's just that magnetic pull of community and that in having great coffee. You know, it wasn't the, the burned black stained water from a silver urn that hadn't been cleaned since the mid 60s, which is that's that was my perception of what coffee was. And I found out it can actually be really, really good. Now, other companies have made billions from community. Think about Peloton. You know, on the surface, it's just a fancy, overpriced stationary bike, right? Completely wrong. Now, they built a diehard community of riders who live and breathe Peloton. Their riders aren't just satisfied. They are ambassadors. I mean, they're, they're incredibly loyal to Peloton. And they don't just burn calories. They ignite conversations. Peloton isn't just selling bikes. They're selling belonging. And they're really, really good at it. So, you know, as a SaaS founder, what do coffee and bikes have anything to do with building a SaaS business? And it's this, a satisfied customer will use your product. A loyal community member will fight for it. Now, when your servers crash at 2 a.m., a satisfied customers will switch to your competitor faster than you can say system outage. But a loyalty community member, 
they will patiently wait, maybe tweet support and, and buy your apology merchandise. You know, community is incredibly powerful and people will go above and beyond. You know, this week I had an experience with community uh, where I had a community member here that we were doing a little get together here at Sastra in San Francisco. And it was like, I went in and booked a same day ticket from the East Coast, flew cross country just to spend a few hours together. Amazing. I mean, is that crazy? A little. Is it committed? My gosh, 100 percent. And I'll tell you, great leaders do what others aren't willing to do. They have epic wins because they live epic lives and they do epic things. And it's that kind of loyalty and commitment is completely reciprocated by others in the community. I mean, it's a, a total band of brothers and, and sisters. Definitely don't want to forget that. As we dig into community over the next two episodes, we're going to unravel the sticky, sweet honey of community building. So how do you transform your user base into a raving, tweeting, hashtagging tribe? Some of the people that are committed, they will do crazy things because they're, they're part of your community and just, you know, they, they fit in. They're, they're with their people. How do you turn your service into a movement, your logo into a flag and your customers into comrades? This isn't simply about pleasing people. It's about engraving your brand into their identity. It's a difference between a one night stand and a lifelong partner, you know. So, are you ready to turn those swipes into a walk down the aisle? Let's build something that lasts, something that's more substantial than fleeting satisfaction. After all, I mean, community—it's not a feature; it's a feeling. So, who's in? If you like the idea of community, then you need to pick up a copy of a new book called "From Grassroots to Greatness." 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. You've heard of product-led growth. You've heard of sales-led growth. How about community-led growth? We've all seen how traditional marketing, even digital marketing, is kind of losing its edge. It's harder and harder to stand out in that world. Features won't do it. Big personalities certainly won't do it. Gimmicks may work temporarily, but the novelty of being the dancing bear is exhausting and, and wears off pretty fast. So how do you stand out in your business? Community, I'm telling you, that is where it's at. You know, we are lonely as a society overall and need connection. We crave that kind of a connection. But we also want a place to fit in with people we have something in common with, like that Peloton community. And a thriving community is your biggest asset, even bigger than brand. And in his book, Lloyd lays out 13 rules to attract your own army of Raven fans. You know, it's your ultimate acquisition channel, brand differentiator, feedback source, retention lever, and catalyst for transformative change. The brands of yesterday were built on what they told us about themselves. Brands of the future will be built about what the community says about them. The book From Grassroots to Greatness releases today. So grab your copy at fromgrassrootstogreatness.com or Amazon. Our expert last week was Erwin Howe, founder of Chromatics Web Design, an award-winning web design and conversion agency. Erwin laid out how to make your website and copy engage and convert better with a 5Cs framework that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, that's an episode that I've actually gone back to and listened to a few extra times myself. So if you missed it, you're going to want to do that as well. Our founder last Tuesday was Tony Flores, founder at Growth Science. 
They replace funnel analysis with market research to supercharge go-to-market execution and help challenger brands and competitive B2B SaaS categories become category leaders. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. Really, really good stuff there. Well, my guest today is Lloyd Lobo. Lloyd is the co-founder of the fintech platform Boast AI. He leveraged the community-led growth model to bootstrap the company to $10 million in ARR, which he then exited, also co-founding Traction, a community empowering more than 100,000 innovators through connections, content, and capital. He is the author of From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. Welcome, champion of community-led growth, Lloyd Lobo. Hey, Lloyd, welcome to SaaS Fuel. I am excited. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. How do you go from refugee to, I'll say, awkward engineer, as you put it, to SaaS CEO to best-selling author? Definitely. So, you know, best-selling is yet to be determined, at least in the new releases pre-sale the community has been very fortunate to pre-order and it's hit uh, top uh, new releases in a number of categories. So, yeah. you know, journey as a refugee to being an awkward engineer and then being a founder and, and here is a very interesting one. But usually what I find is that people have something in their childhood that draws them towards their journey in the future. And I guess my first experience with uncertainty and risk came during that Gulf War. I wake up one morning and, and my mom tells me, I don't think you can go to school anymore. There is a war that has just broken out and the security of the country has lapsed. We can hear bombings and lootings. My first wow. reaction actually was that of excitement because I think I had like a learning disability or something growing up. I would study very last minute. It would be very difficult for me to read anything. And, and so I study for this math exam and I show up and it's a geography exam. And I was certain that I'm failing fourth grade. So when my mom wakes me up and says, hey, I don't think you can go to school anymore. My first reaction is, yes, you're never going to find out. I failed fourth grade. <laughs> but then when the reality started to sink in, the worry on their faces, I'm, I'm like, okay, this can't be good, right? As a eight, nine-year-old, you see your parents stressed out and you're like, okay, something bad is, is happening. So that day I go down the building and with my dad, we're like looking around and we see a bunch of concerned faces. And, you know, in 2023, it's become fashionable to belabor on problems. For some reason, the media perpetuates bad news because bad news right. drives eyeballs and engagement. But back then, it wasn't like that. There was a problem, obviously. Security had lapsed. There was a time where there was no phones or internet. And you don't know what you're going to do. But instead of belaboring on the problem, I saw that building almost became a sub-community and people started saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to guard the building from 6 to 12. And somebody else is like, okay, you know, I'll guard it from 12 to 6. And somebody else is like, okay, I'll stand with you. Another person said, hey, I'll organize supplies and food. How are you placed for food and supplies and other things in the house? And somebody else is like, hey, I have family members that are displaced. So they immediately started finding out, okay, you know what? I got extra room. Somebody else said, hey, my friend works in the school nearby. So maybe we can figure out some shelter. 
every building was having a similar conversation. And so every building became the sub-community and word of mouth spread from building to building to building and eventually became this grassroots movement that ended up being probably the largest evacuation at a time when there's no phone or internet. And they communicated with embassies, with countries, and evacuated people to safety. And when I think back, what is entrepreneurship? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a business, but entrepreneurship is taking an idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk and uncertainty. And that was a time of extreme risk and uncertainty. And that was also my experience with community where how people come together and mobilize and and create impact. And when we left Kuwait, I was on this rickety bus going from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan on the highway of death. Buses were bombed. You weren't sure you're going to live or die. You weren't sure what you're going to do next and how long it would take. But as I looked around the bus, the adults, instead of being concerned and crying, we're laughing and singing and playing the guitar. And I realized that day that it's neither the destination nor the journey, but it's the companions that matter the most. You could be on a crappy journey on the way to hell and great companions make it memorable. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been in in an exquisite environment, probably sipping champagne and, and eating caviar or something similar, but you felt like suffocated? Yes, yes. And, and uh, here I am <laughs> in, this, in this environment and everyone's having a blast, right? And, and it tied very similar to years prior. So my grandparents and my, and my mom were raised in the slums of India in Mumbai. And uh, my grandparents had 10 kids and it was a small, I don't know, makeshift home, I guess, four walls <laughs> and an aluminum roof. And every time I'd visit, my fondest memories as a kid was spending three months of summer in that slum in Mumbai where it would rain all the time and puddles would turn into ponds and we'd be swimming in there or watching TV was a communal activity where people would, you know, whoever could fit in that little house would fit in and others would be hanging from outside and watching TV, playing games together, exchanging like food and snacks, passing home to home. And, you know, that place didn't even have a bathroom. So you had a common toilet that you had to wait in line every day, right? And set set amounts of time. But it was the best time. And every year that we left back to Kuwait for the summer, I would, I would just cry and want, not want to leave. And so mm. I, I always ask my, my mom, my grandparents, why do you have random strangers in the house? You barely have room for others, And I would always hear some version of the only way to create abundance in life is to help others without expecting anything in return. You might not get something from those people, but the karma will come back to you in ways you can't even imagine. And of course, today in 2023, all of his grandkids even are all well off. Nobody's in that slum and everyone's done well. So that experience as a childhood, my fondest memories were being a part of community, then experiencing the risk and uncertainty of taking an idea to impact while working with the community were my formative experiences in dealing with both community and experiencing entrepreneurship. And so as I left Kuwait, a number of years later, moved to Canada and went to university there, 
I always crave that uncertainty and risk. And, and I, until today, I'm a zero to one person. I cannot be in an environment where, you know, it's scaling. It's like optimizing for the last 20%. It has to be new things, new ideas. Yeah. And so I went through engineering, graduated engineering. And around the time I talked to a few business people in the family, family friends, and, and asked, what were the best skills that helped you become, get to where you are today? And what I kept hearing was sales. Sales is everything. It, sales fixes everything. And, uh, you know, that was, that was eye-opening for me. And so when I graduated, I only applied for sales jobs. Now imagine an awkward engineer, <laughs> not, not, not good at public speaking, applies to sales jobs. And at the time, like the word wasn't entrepreneurship. You just called them businessmen, businessmen, businesswomen. It's a business. It wasn't entrepreneurship, startup. Those words weren't cool. And so I started applying for sales jobs and, you know, from Xerox to small companies, nobody would give me a job. You know, I interviewed at a bunch of places and they're like, listen, I think you should just find a job in, in computer or software engineering. And I begged and fought my way into, into asking and making this small company give me a job in cold calling. And what I, what I thought to myself is, hey, we all have certain limitations. And the best way to, to never overcome those limitations is to not do it. And what would, you know, if I wanted to get good at sales and good at communication, what job would put me in a better position to learn this more than sales, right? Communication yeah. is, is the rails for everything we do. Without communication, you can't connect with people. You can't convince investors. You can't convince your spouse to keep doing a, a company. You can't convince early employees. You can't uh, to, to work on a lower pay. You can't convince them on the vision. You can't convince your developers, anybody, right? You need to communicate to evangelize. And a lot of us today, we say, you know what? I suck at writing and I suck at this and that, but we never do it. If you never do it and you suck at it, you'll never get better at it. And so the best way to learn something, it's like chiseling a sculpture, right? You start heavy and then you refine it and refine it, but you got to take that first step and keep doing it, right? Ultimately, you know, communication, you know, is one of the key aspects of driving success in this world, being a successful business person, a professional. But how do you get better at it is just consistently doing it. Anything, whether it's writing, whether it's creating videos, whether it's doing sales, anything in life happens through consistency. And I thought to myself, the only way I can be consistent, be forced, right? Because motivation is very hard, Jeff. You know, I've, I've found myself lacking motivation in several scenarios, right? But systems eat motivation for breakfast. So if you create, you know, what better system than get a sales job and you need to pay the bills now and you need to hit quota. And so every day you're forced to communicate. There's no other job on this planet where you're required to communicate, polish your messaging on the fly, negotiate, course correct, and do this like day in, day out, forget day in, day out, hour in, hour out, minute in, minute out. That's all you're doing. And, and that was the best skill. And you know, for, for people listening and, and taking advice from this, I would say, you know, it's important to get started. The first cold call I made, I took four hours to prepare. And I kept like having, you know, fright, stage fright or whatever you want to call it. And as soon as a person answered the phone, I got to the connect with the decision maker, I hung up. And everyone started laughing. Oh, wow. 
That's quite the journey. So how did that get you from the initial sales job? How did you end up starting um, Boast? Definitely. So my co-founder and I, Alex, Alex Popa, and I went to university together. We worked on every single project together. We're just partners. We had transferred out to this university in the boonies in, in Canada, Thunder Bay. And so we had met in Toronto. We, we had initially started our journey in, in community college and then transferred out to university. So we were probably two of the only folks on that community college that went there. And um, it was also the only university at the time that offered a bachelor's of engineering degree in software because everything is computers, right? And, and they were accredited for software engineering. And we bet that, you know, software is going to be huge someday. And, and that bet played out, right? And, uh, and so we worked on every project together. He did all the coding projects. I did all the front-facing stuff. And then when we graduated, he got into Johnson & Johnson's engineering leadership program. Very bright. They take two students a year. And I wow. moved on, right? I, I worked in this job, cold calling. And then my next job was doing sales at a startup in the, in the States. Um, my girlfriend, then now wife, was in medical school and I needed to move. So I got a, applied. I, I got lucky, got a visa and moved. So... Number of years later, Alex from Johnson Johnson ended up doing a startup, and that startup didn't work out. And he felt he needed the skills of accounting and finance, and his unique skill set of accounting and finance combined with engineering got him into the world of R and D, tax credits, and government funding. Because globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in innovation funding right. by governments, right? But it's a cumbersome application process. It's prone to frustrating audits and it takes a long time to get the money. So Alex was working at a big four in, in Canada and I went on my journey working at other startups. And one day he calls me and he's like, I want to do something in this space. Incidentally, I was working at a startup running growth and the CEO was, you know, very much in tune with hustle culture, right? And I understand, I empathize sure. today as a founder because back then I wasn't. He had investors that were pressuring him and they weren't sophisticated investors and they were driving him to see like double, triple growth. And that, you know, they say it all flow, flows down the hill, right? right? So it was pressuring the team. And I used to be in the office till 9, 10 frequently. My wife was in residency at the time. So she was working 80, 100 hours a week anyway. One week, I started going home at 6. And I get an email from him that says, hey, I used to love it when you were in the office till 9 or 10 with me, last person to leave. But this week, you've started going home at 6. And I'm concerned. What's causing you to go home? Your wife is a resident. So she's working 100-hour weeks anyway. So what do you need to go home early for? I, I still have that email from him. And what had happened was my parents were visiting me from Canada. I hadn't seen them in some time. So I started going home at 6. And as soon as I got home and I, and I saw that email from him, Alex calls me and he's like, I want to do this company. And I'm like, you know, I, I nearly had tears in my eyes. I'm a very emotional person. I'm like, bro, I don't care what we do. As long as we build the company we want to work for, I'm in. And so, so that was the journey to entrepreneurship. So Alex had the idea of R&D tax credits. He was um, the brains behind the, the system and, and all the operations. I was the face of the company and we worked as one unit. He was founder CEO. I was founder president. And it was a, it was a great relationship that carried on from how we operated in university. He did all the coding projects. I evangelized the pro professors and the, and the stage. But there was one key step 
that was crucial for my learning in between becoming the head of GTM at a venture back startup and the cold calling job. So when I moved to the States, I, I, I got this job in sales. Now, I, I, I wanted to go from, of course, dialing for dollars to actually closing big deals. So I joined this startup that was selling supply chain software to big companies, Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, etc. And I joined there in sales and a couple months in the CEO who was managing the whole, like, I guess, product and GTM functions, he left. And then I realized very quickly that there's not a repeatable, scalable product in a way here. You got to talk to customers and understand their pain points and figure out what to build. Then I also got to wireframe and communicate what to build to the developers. And guess what? I also have to now build a new website and figure out all the product <laughs> marketing and materials. So <laughs> the, the issue was, you know, a lot of people... I think in 2023, as I, as I talk to younger kids, they say, oh, this is not the job I signed up for. I'm going to quit. And I had that, op- I, I didn't have the option. I came to the US on a right. visa, right? And more importantly, I was long distancing with my girlfriend who had known, like, I mean, we've known each other since our teens. So I wanted to be with her. So I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so I started walking the plant floors of these companies like Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, etc., and started talking to them and understanding their pain points and then started wireframing and writing spec docs for the development team. And then when the time came to launch, we redid the website and I needed to learn about marketing and SEO. This was a time where everything was offline, right? Digital wasn't a thing. And so I started hmm. Google searching, like, how do I SEO? How do I, you know, how do I basically do digital marketing? Because I knew that the only way to win is not to do what everyone else is doing. You got to do something different, especially in a small company where you don't have sure. the resources to buy billboard ads. And so I started finding all this content from HubSpot, HubSpot's inbound marketing program. Yeah. And I joined, I did the inbound marketing certification. That Gary Vaynerchuk talk about um, video creation. And he was this chubby little young guy with wine TV, had a whole, like a couple hour video course on, on HubSpot's inbound marketing uh, program. And I joined a lot of their meetups and effectively now HubSpot, you know, I talked about the slums in India to, uh, to, to the Gulf war community. Now my third community became, became HubSpot's inbound marketing community because <laughs> everything great. I learned Everything I learned about sales and marketing was from that community. And I would just implement it right away. And that's the best way to learn, right? It's not like read, but you're, you're referencing it and then watching and you're doing it. And I still remember back then I launched a video and it got like 30, 40,000 views. And it was a boring manufacturing facility video, which is a testimonial from Simon and Schuster or something. And so that formed my learnings. And, and that day I realized a second thing. Communication is critical. But the second skill you need is the ability to create. And there's no better job than to work in an early product startup as probably the renaissance salesperson or the first salesperson because you're working alongside the founder and you're talking to customers, figuring out what to build and communicating that you learn a ton, right? You're basically, yes, effectively yes. you're doing founder level sales. And so that combination, I think, learning to communicate and learning to create, if you combine that together, you can do big things. And, and so that was, I think, the most important 
experience in my journey because if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't know how to now translate customer requirements into developer requirements and how to like infuse marketing. Because think about it, if, if the visa wasn't the right. issue, then I would have probably left the job and joined somewhere else. And if I joined somewhere else, then I would be very shoeboxed into just doing sales and been an AE and my journey would have been an AE. I'm sure it would have been a great one because you know you could you could do great at one thing and keep quick down the down that path. Sure. But um it took me on this founder path and then you know I love that risk and uncertainty and then and then that ended up being the journey. So the next company I joined was a startup where the founder said, hey, you, you know, why are you going home at six? And that's when Alex called me. I jumped at the opportunity. And it's funny because we decided to move to San Francisco at the time. And I, and I kept telling my wife, listen, um, if you want to do a company, you got to move to the Bay Area. I don't care how it is or what people say, but if you want to be in movies, you got to go to Hollywood. And that's the jam. And they're, I'm like, there's no tech ecosystem in the East Coast, like New York, New Jersey, Philly. There's not much of an ecosystem. And uh, she fought and she argued and all of that. And then she finally said, I'm going to apply to one university. If I get in, we're in. And that ended up being Stanford. She got in 13 later, years nice. later. We're still in, still in the Bay Area. Now, Alex was in Calgary at the time. And so I was spending moved into his apartment for the first few months and I was shuttling back and forth San Francisco to Calgary. But that small subset of customers that we found in the early days in that Calgary ecosystem uh, was what helped us validate, build, get early customers, get to our first couple million in revenue. And then we scale from there now, like, you know, Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, San Francisco, parts, many parts of the US and so on. So what was that journey like? I mean, you get the the initial traction, you get your initial customers, and then you're you're on your way to 10 million. What are the the milestones, or what are the things that you did to go from one to 10? What are you the know, different phases of that journey? Definitely, I think the the phase from zero to one is crucial because it's you know it's it's hard, and and sure. then the journey from one to 10 is another big milestone, and then then 10. 10 plus, right? 10 to 50, and then maybe 50 to 100, which I haven't seen, but now the company is north of 20. So a lot of things break, especially when you're a bootstrap company and you bootstrap to 10, when you go from 10 to make that journey to 20. And a lot of yeah. things break break from one to 10 as well. But I'll, you know, our, our zero to one and one to 10 were similarly tied. So when I moved into Calgary, the first thing I knew was, what do I do? We need to get customers. We're not going to build anything. Uh, you know, Alex had done a startup. I had now worked for two venture-backed startups that had failed, but I learned immensely. And, and so picked up a phone, started calling, right? Hey, we'll get you money from the government for your product development. All you need to do is give us your product development data. And they're like, who the hell are you? <laughs> Imagine you get a call, you get a call like that. Hey, you know what? Did you know you could get a couple hundred thousand dollars from the government um, and under these programs? All you need to do is give me your data. I'll look at it and I'll apply for these programs for you. That's how we started. No products because we had no money. We we're bootstrapping. We had been a part of failed companies and we knew what venture and raising money and building things that people don't want looks like. And everyone would say, no, like we don't want to talk to you. So we started calling a bunch of ICP. So the key learning there is number one is you got to figure out your ICP. 
how do you hone in on that so came came through this framework which is figure out the size of the market is it a large and growing one figure out the ease of access and figure out their propensity to pay now it doesn't matter it's a massive market and they have a great propensity to pay if you don't have ease of access you're not going to go from 0 to 1 forget it and our thing was initially in the early days we were calling larger companies deep tech you know manufacturing traditional industries and nobody would talk to us and we're like okay let's start going to these people's events so we started going to like supply chain events manufacturing events trying to meet the ceos but we had nothing in common with them we couldn't relate you're you're two young guys right in their in their early 30s and doing <laughs> this company and startup wasn't a thing back then so like why should we work with you guys off the street then we started swarming the startup events every single tech event we went and we got involved in and we realized that okay you know this is our tribe because we come from that background yeah. their founders their founders it resonates the conversations are happening and then the second thing we realized as a part of that icp exercise is these founders have very specific problems right i want to grow my business i want to figure out how i get my first x customers i want to figure out how i secure my first angel investor everything is like how do i do a first off i i want to figure out how do i validate my marketing channel the yeah. issue there was when we started going to these events none of these events were talking about these things they were all high level ceo platitudes from very big company ceos like startups who had like made it and that's not helpful to a zero to one founder right 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 and we and we figured that the reason why that was happening was everyone who was organizing those founder events were event organizers they weren't founders like us so they hadn't had that journey and so we're like aha uh-huh, you know what we've been around the startup circuit like me now spending time in the east coast startup ecosystem a bit being in silicon valley i'm like maybe we host our own events and rather than doing the ceo platitudes we'll bring somebody who's like you know we're targeting now sort of the 0 of 1 and maybe 1 to 5 founder because that's the ideal customer for us you're spending money in product development and we're going to get you that money back in canada you get 64% cash back from the government in the us it's ranges between 10 and 20% so we're like that's the founder we want now yeah. why don't we just bring a founder who's hit 10 not 100 if they've hit 10 it's not a platitude it's tactical and so then our emails transform from saying hey buy my stuff buy my stuff buy my stuff to hey founder we are bringing jeff to talk about how to get your first customers and it's a small meetup at our co-working space and pizza is going to be there for free we're going to need 10 spots do you want to come everyone came it was full and we now do that on a cadence because what that did was the social proof of the speaker was parlayed onto us we got the brand rub of the speaker right right and now we started getting conversations with our icp right figuring out okay this is a large growing market and at the time actually people were making fun of us large competitors were like why are you going after the startup market you guys are fools like these guys are going to go bankrupt your business is going to flop like go after manufacturing go after deep tech go after electronics like go after all these industries and i'm like we're founders too and and we know we're no none of these companies are talking to us yeah right and we yeah. need the help and like 
we'll scratch our own itch and helping us will help other founders too, rather than taking the advice for us from our network. We'll open it up and we'll help these founders. Now, you know, I think the only way to win in the world is to be contrarian, have a contrarian view and, and hope that it's right. Because fast forward to 2023, all these accountants, bankers, lawyers, everyone wants to service startups, right? It's the fastest growing market. It's, it's right. you know, people are launching partnerships with accelerators, launching their own startup programs. And I feel like some of it is disingenuine because they want, they're doing it for money. When they, when startups weren't hot, they weren't supporting them, right? Right. And, and, and so we went out there and started hosting these events because we're like, we're learned. And this is our market anyway. And if we don't learn and if we don't help this market, then we have no shot at winning any other big customers anyway, because it's a struggle. And that bet played off. More and more people started showing up to this event. 10 turned into 20, turned into 50. The one thing we did was great cadence. Like very regularly, we hosted them every couple of weeks. And one day, 200 people showed up in the co-working space and the, the guys running the co-working space says, hey, this is no longer a pizza night, man. This has turned into a full-blown conference here. So you can't, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> so that eventually turned into what Traction is today. And Traction, now we do a big annual conference. Every major CEO from Twilio to Atlassian and so on have been to our events. We do small meetups. We still do the 10, 20-person dinners in different cities, private. And then podcasts. At peak, we were doing two live podcasts a week on Zoom and then posted on YouTube and, um, and Spotify and so on. And so it became a large community. But what happened was the brand rub of the speakers got me to a third learning, right, in terms of building the company, or rather the second learning in, in terms of building, building your company, is now that you have your ICP, your ideal customer profile, Figure out their circle of influence. Who are the other people they buy from? Because they could be your partners, sponsors, etc. Who are the people they follow and look up to? Because these could be special guests you invite into your content, into your community yeah. and speakers. And the last one is where do they hang out? So what platforms do they live on? What magazines, what blogs they read? Now, this was 2012. So it was a time where LinkedIn wasn't prevalent at all. Nobody was using LinkedIn to distribute content. Instagram and all of this stuff wasn't massive in, in that way. And so people were reading TechCrunch and blogs and everything else. And so, we, you know, I noticed the local newspaper was not covering startups. That just shows you back then, like nobody was right. supporting startups. So I told them, I reached out and, and I followed up several times. I mean, being the relentless cold caller I was, uh, email, call. I said, listen, I will write Startup of the Week as a column every week. Just give me a column. You don't have to pay me. I'll do it. I'll find the startup. I'll cover it. And I wrote that column for two years. Now, the meetups we did combined with that Startup of the Week content we wrote coupled with now inviting other vendors who startups bought from and inviting speakers who were people they followed. And then over time, as the events got bigger, we started inviting journalists from, from magazines like now TechCrunch, Frederic Lardinois from TechCrunch, who's a senior reporter there. He comes to all our big events 
and he moderates sessions because I'm like, I don't want to hog the limelight. You moderate. So now when a founder comes to our events, no matter how big or small, they feel like, okay, it's my tribe. I follow these people. I, you know, buy solutions from these vendors and these reporters that I, you know, want to get covered in are there. So we started getting the social proof of, of these people. It helped us build partnerships and we started adding customers and the conversation wasn't very buy my stuff anymore. It's like, how can I help you? Hey, founder, I know nobody's out to help you, but I know somebody, I know a good banker. I know an angel investor. I know a lawyer, an accountant who's not going to charge you an arm and a leg and take care of the stuff you want. Or I know some growth person who can share advice. And then, you know, you casually ask them, by the way, you know, are you spending much at all in product development? Do you think you could use our service? And they'd be like, yeah, you've been so helpful. Why not? Right. And so we started yeah. adding, and that was the journey to get to the first couple million in revenue. And, you know, we started, you know, if you take the lessons, figure out the ICP, how do you figure out the ICP, figure out the size of the market, figure out the propensity to pay and the ease of access understand the customer really well, their pains, their needs, their aspirations, their goals. Don't focus on the solution, focus on their problem. And that's important because you will evolve as a company. Your first product won't be your last product. And every company that's at 100 million doesn't only have one product for the most. And so right. focusing on their problems and their aspirations helped us build content and a community around them. It helped us figure out their circle of influence so we could invite who they followed, who they pay, what are the solutions they paid for, and the platforms they hang out. We could distribute content there, but we could also invite the journalists and other influencers from there. So that was the steps to initially honing in on that ICP. And then expanding from there, we delivered the solution manually for the first few years. Once you deliver the search solution manually, then you understand, hey, what is the exact process to do this in a repeatable, scalable way? Once you have a repeatable, scalable process to deliver, deliver the customer the outcome, then you know what to automate, what to delegate, what to eliminate. And so our first version of the software was on Zoho Creator, which Alex built entirely with his bare hands. He used Go Zoho Creator and leveraged Zapier. But if we didn't offer the service manually, Jeff, I think it would be really hard because customers want an outcome, right? They don't want software. Right, right. And when you deliver the service manually, it helps you get really good at not only selling in a consultative way, but also customer success. Because then you don't have, like in 2023, we see a lot of enterprise-grade companies that are selling B2B, uh, ignore the PLG companies, but the, but the B2B, anytime it's a complex problem, it becomes that you need support and you need services. And now you need right. an implementation person. And that software, the total cost of ownership ends up costing you probably 3x as much as what you paid for in implementation fees. So we're like, hey, we don't have any of this to hide behind. Customers want an outcome, no outcome, no customer, no buttons, no widgets, none of that stuff. Right. And so that's that's how we made the journey. So we honed in on the customer problem. We delivered the service manually. We built the first version on low-code solutions. Now, you don't have to use Zoho Creator and Zapier necessarily today. There's other tools like Webflow and Bubble. Zapier still is table stakes. And, and that helps you figure out now, you know, at least you have an MVP. And so you've done this work manually. Now, if you want to digitize this, there's three or four steps, right? 
I'm collecting data. Am I collecting data from the customer? Well, you, how are you collecting it? Oh, Excel sheets, Google Drive. Well, the first thing is let's automate that. So create a front end for sure. the customer and you can leverage Zapier to pull that data in. Now you have that data. You got to normalize that data, right? So you write some algorithm, some code to, to streamline that data. For us, it was a very complex task that took many years because we were taking product development data, which is all unstructured and then combining it with financial data. Wow. And so we needed that. That took a gargantuan effort. And, and combining that and, and flattening it and making sure it's normalized. And then it's like, okay, you analyze that data. Now, what do I do with it? And then the last step is workflow. For us, it was filling forms. Okay, it needs to go in this PDF, in, in this form, in that format with these calculations. So you can have a very calm conversation. Is like, where do you spend the most time? Am I spending the most time in collecting data? Well, let's start there. But uh, am I spending the most time in normalizing data? Let's spend time there. And, and you knock it out one at a time. And and now the customer is getting the outcome while you're building the software in parallel. I couldn't find any other way, man, to bootstrap the company. And like we we couldn't uh, outside of doing that, get customers to pay you, deliver the service manually, understand the process, deliver a no-code solution first as an MVP, and then at scale, build the technology from the ground up. And in parallel, build a community because we didn't have the budget to invest in ads and whatnot. And over time, our community built through the community, we met influencers and partners who could refer us these customers. So it wasn't just customers coming direct for our, from our events. And that was actually the journey from zero to 10, some iteration of it, right? Like, so initially, like I said, small events in Calgary, then expanded into mm-hmm. a big conference, even initially doing the service manually, then expanded to Zoho Creator and, and Zapier, then our full-blown product. It was iterations on that same model, though. And the funny thing is, during COVID, everything was shut. We had to right. even shut big, big conference. And now we had like 55, 60 speakers we had confirmed. And I started to get paranoid. I'm like, dude, this is like a big part of our BD is hosting in-person events. And if you don't do this, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really difficult. How do you do business? Right? Because our cold calling was warmed up. So over time, we added cold calling, but that cold calling wasn't super duper cold in the sense, if your brand is visible everywhere, it's a little warmer when you outreach. Right. Or you can layer in that, hey, buy my stuff. Then the next email is, by the way, while you're looking at it, we're hosting an event that is relevant to you with this speaker. And if it's the CEO of a big company, then it builds social proof or you add some social proof in every every email. So we canceled this, this conference and I didn't have the fortitude to do a two-day virtual summit because I wouldn't sit through it. I can't sit through it. So I reached yeah. out to all the speakers on a bet that actually played off and said, hey, would you be willing to do a live AMA, like a live fireside chat with our audience every week? And you know that played off because we started getting a few hundred people join those live sessions on Zoom and we quickly expanded to two. So over time, we started doing these two, two, two live webinars a week, post the recordings on YouTube, post the audio on Spotify eventually. But first, it was all YouTube and live on Zoom. And the audience during the pandemic went from like 30 some odd thousand over the two years to over 100,000 subscribers. What we also found is that our investors that eventually bought the company came through that community. So it was a small... There was a small window where in-person events opened up. 
I'm a big believer in in-person. I love this audience. I love in-person. Yeah, but anytime you incorporate more than two senses, we're sound and sight. Now, in-person would be taste, touch, and smell. Right. We'll start building stronger bonds. And actually, you know, I'll, I'll touch on this uh, a little after the investor story, but there's a common framework as I was writing the book and interviewing people that I came on that is common to every obscure idea that became a global phenomenon from like Christ to CrossFit. And I'll talk about that in a second. But we did this in-person event because it, things opened up for a very brief period. And through a community partner, right, that, that you know, we had in our circle of influence, we invited a VC to participate, Radiant Capital out of New York, on a panel. They came. They loved the event so much. They reached out to me and said, hey, why don't you join our venture partner network? We'll give you carry. And uh, I said, listen... This is like a side community thing I do just to support other founders. We've been doing it from the time we started the company, but I have a business to run and I don't have the energy to do this or time. They're like, what's your company? Because our, our events were all traction, 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 right? And um, when I explained what they did, their jaws dropped. They're like, you're selling $100 bills for $20 and no marketing team and got like 80% gross margins. Can we invest? And I'm like... I knew Alex was dead against taking investor money. He's all about like, you know, how do you maintain control? And like being in an investor relationship is a marriage. Yes. And uh, yeah, it is. Thanks again, Lloyd, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. We will hear more from Lloyd on Thursday in the second half of this episode. You can learn more about Lloyd and get your copy of his book, From Grassroots to Greatness, at fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. All links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. You can subscribe and follow us there or check us out on YouTube as well. Everyone who subscribes this week gets an espresso epiphany. One shot of this will solve all of life's problems, or at least you'll think you have for about 15 minutes. So enjoy the buzz. Well, join us again Thursday for the conclusion of my interview with Lloyd Lobo as we dive deeper into community-led growth. What does it mean? How do we do it well in your SaaS to build a community of ambassadors out there in the marketplace for you? And next Tuesday on our Founder Series, my guest is Alexander DeRitter, co-founder, visionary, and CTO at Inc., the world's first AI-powered content optimization software. Alexander crafts magical tools for web marketing and loves to study the how and why humans and AI make decisions. If you want a glimpse into the future of AI and where we're headed, Alexander has been doing this for years. You'll be blown away with some of his predictions for the future. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!